Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hi, everyone. Happy Friday. Welcome back to Strictly VC Download, where we took a little break last week and are now energized and ready to go and eager to introduce you to this week's guest, Kevin Novak, a former chief data scientist at Uber, who is now applying his talents to startup investing via a new $15 million fund called Rackhouse, though Novak has actually been investing on nights and weekends since at least 2015. We really enjoy talking with him. We think you will enjoy it too. Before we jump into that conversation, though, a quick look at some of the week's news. On Thursday, ProPublica, which somehow obtained a huge treasure trove of confidential IRS tax information, released a detailed look into how PayPal and Palantir co-founder Peter Thiel has elevated tax avoidance to an art form. According to the nonprofit news organization, Thiel managed to shelter billions of dollars in assets by taking advantage of a loophole in the rules governing Roth IRAs. Roth IRAs were designed to allow taxpayers making less than $110,000 a year in salary the ability to squirrel away a maximum of $2,000 in income per year. Although these taxpayers would have to pay initial tax on the $2,000, they could grow the money in a Roth IRA tax-free and then withdraw the funds after age 59 and a half with no taxes or penalties. When PayPal was in its infancy, Thiel exploited these rules because his salary as CEO was only $73,000. He earned the majority of his compensation in stock. He consequently used $1,700 of his salary to buy 1 million shares of stock for well under a penny a share and deposited the shares in his Roth IRA account. Post PayPal's IPO way back in 2002, the value of these shares skyrocketed. Thiel sold the shares and has been buying other stocks with the money ever since. As a result, the value of his Roth IRA account now exceeds $5 billion. Is all of this legal? Maybe. Thiel did make it through an IRS audit in 2011. However, it's definitely shady. Thiel hardly fits the profile of the middle-class taxpayer the Roth IRA was designed to serve. Sadly, as ProPublica's series of articles on moguls like Jeff Bezos make clear, Thiel's scheme appears to be just another in a long list of connivances perpetrated by tech billionaires who don't believe in paying their fair share. In other news, the startup scene in Europe is starting to hew more closely to the zaniness we've been seeing in the U.S. We've seen this trend gain momentum over the last four or five years, but this year is almost another story entirely. According to Deal Room, European startups had a record first quarter of this year, raising the U.S. equivalent of $20 billion. That's more than double what they raised in the first quarter of last year. Just this week alone, we saw upwards of 10 massive rounds for European startups, including Aircall, a cloud-based contact center platform in Paris that raised $120 million, Forto, a Berlin-based logistics startup that raised $240 million, GoStudent, a video tutoring marketplace that raised 205 million euros, and Molly, an Amsterdam-based payments company that rivals Stripe in Europe and that raised a whopping 665 million euros. It's no wonder that U.S. investors are spending more time in Europe, as well as opening offices there. While for years it was really just the venture firms Excel and Benchmark, which later became Balderton Capital, 
More recently, Sequoia Capital, Lightspeed Venture Partners, and Battery Ventures have opened offices there too. So too has Activant Capital, a Greenwich, Connecticut-based growth stage firm that just opened a Berlin-based office by hiring away a partner from the European fund Global Founders Capital. We talked with Activant's founder, Steve Saracino, earlier this week to ask, why now? And he noted that the timing is right for a few reasons. He said there's always been a lot of technical talent in Europe, guesstimating that there are two times the number of STEM graduates in Europe as in the U.S. The challenge before, he said, was that the venture community was smaller and it takes a sizable early stage community to create later stage opportunities. Europe was also missing middle management, he noted. Now that big companies like Facebook, Amazon and Google are very much in Europe, the continent is home to plenty of people who know how to manage fast growing teams. Of course, as the scene in Europe begins to more closely mirror that in the U.S., one advantage that early U.S. investors in Europe might have enjoyed has disappeared, and that's better valuations. Still, you can see why the trade-off is worth it for U.S. VCs. Next month, for example, Wise, a London-based banking fintech, is expected to go public in London at a valuation of upwards of $7 billion. Klarna, a buy-now-pay-later startup in Stockholm, was just valued by its investors, including Sequoia Capital, at a stunning $45 billion. Amazingly, there are now about 70 other unicorn companies in Europe that are right behind them. And now our conversation with Kevin Novak of Rackhouse Venture Capital. But first, a word from our sponsor. In a few short weeks, startup founders from around the world will join TechCrunch's bootcamp series, TC Early Stage Marketing and Fundraising, happening on July 8th and 9th. You'll choose from a wide range of founder-focused presentations that span the fundamentals of launching and growing your business, whether you're bootstrapping or have just secured your first investment funds. Register before next Friday and get your ticket for just $25 with promo code STRICTLYVC at techcrunch.com forward slash early stage. See you there. our conversation with Kevin Novak of Rackhouse Venture Capital. Novak is a Michigan native whose first startup job was at Uber, which, as it turns out, was a pretty good place to start a career in Silicon Valley. After logging nearly seven years with the company, Novak left in late 2017 after Dara Khorashahi stepped into the role of CEO of the rideshare giant. And it's been a busy ride for Novak since. He's been an entrepreneur in residence with Costanoa Ventures and Playground Global, been the CTO for Tala, a company that unlocks smartphone data to lend to the global unbank. And he's been investing actively on the side. Turns out he likes investing a whole lot, so he recently raised his first fund from outside investors, putting together $15 million that he now plans to invest in very nascent AI companies across a wide number of sectors. We talked with him about the fund and his tenure at Uber this morning. Kevin, I know a few things about you. One of the things I know is that you were the 21st employee of Uber and the seventh engineer and that you went on to be its chief data scientist. But Tell us a little bit more about your background. Yeah, absolutely. My story, way back in the day, I was actually studying to be a nuclear physicist. I got into nuclear physics. As an undergrad, I was studying physics, and I got degrees in math and computer science as well. And when I got to grad school, I really wanted to teach, but I also really liked programming and applying physics concepts in the programming space. And the nuke department had the largest allocation of supercomputer time. And so that ended up being the thing that really drove a lot of my research was just the opportunity to play on computers while doing physics. 
So was studying to become a nuclear physicist was funded very indirectly through the research that eventually became the Higgs boson. As the Higgs got discovered, it was very good for humanity and absolutely horrible for my research budget. And I had to do my very first entrepreneurial pivot, which was basically find a home for this software tool I'd been developing and went through it, found a new grant to get it funded, but really said, I think I want to start exploring what industry had to offer. And so I started looking in startups. I had family out on the West Coast and a friend of mine heard what I was doing and sort of knew my skill set and said, you should come check out this Uber cab company. It's like a limo company with an app, but there's a very interesting data problem and a very interesting math problem. And so I ended up applying and I did all of the cardinal sins of startup applications and startup interviewing. I literally wore a suit and tie to my startup <laughs> interview. You were coming from Michigan? That's right. So I grew up in Michigan. I was in grad school at Michigan State, but my dad actually lived in the Bay Area. So I spent every summer down in Santa Cruz and San Jose. So I was familiar with the scene, but was right. definitely coming out of the Midwest. Well, I was just going to say, I grew up in the Midwest and I can completely see why you thought people would be wearing suits <laughs> to <laughs> job interviews. I literally got off the elevator and my friend who had encouraged me to apply is like, what are you wearing? And like <laughs> ripped the tie off of my neck, just was desperately dressing me down. But yeah, but I ended up impressing nonetheless and, and got asked to join Uber as their 21st employee. And it was yeah, I think you got it right. It was like the seventh engineer. I got hired as a computational algorithms engineer, some title that predated the data science trend, but I was a data scientist and spent the next couple of years basically living in the engineering and product world, building data features and the team slowly grew. And so spent a lot of time working on things like our ETA engine, basically predicting how long it would take an Uber to get to you. One of my very first projects was working on tolls and tunnels because figuring out which tunnel an Uber went through and how to build time and distance, and then usually there's a toll affiliated with this, was a common failure point. And so I spent three straight days driving the big dig in Boston with a bunch of phones collecting GPS data and out to Somerville and then turn around and back to Logan and turn around and so I got to know a lot of very random facts about Uber <laughs> cities, but my big claim to fame was dynamic pricing. And so I spent the first couple years of the dynamic pricing project, basically getting everything up and going. So I always tell everybody, if you've ever been surged in a rideshare app, you're welcome. That's my invention to the world. <laughs> Thinking through marketplace optimization for a product like Uber was a lot of fun. And, and it turned out to be a really successful cornerstone for the strategy of making sure Ubers were available. How does that go over when you tell people that you invented surge pricing? They must be thrilled at that. You know, it's a very quick litmus test to figure out people's underlying enthusiasm for economics and and behavioral econ and finance. The Wall Street crowd is like, oh my God, that's so cool. And then there, a lot of people are like, oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. You're wonderful. And you've got to go buy the next round of drinks thing. So it's very bimodal. But overall, I think people are really intrigued consistently by the application of data in the product experience. It was one of the real first times where hard machine learning, hard predictive modeling had a really strong impact on the Uber ride request product flow. And so I spent a couple of years basically building literally everything in search from the ML models to the backend service. We built the admin console and the customer support tools to make sure that all of our reps had the right info to understand what happened in a surge experience. I was in 
academia, as I mentioned, because I wanted to teach at one point in my career. And when I was managing and running a team, I got that same analogous pleasure of growing people and getting ideas going and seeing what larger and larger groups of people could do. And that was when I talked to Tuan and, and became Uber's first head of data science. That was when data science as a business function forked off of the engineering tree and became its own distinct title and role and that set of expectations. And spent the next four or five years building data teams all over the company, we built this very horizontally scaled out product analytics team. And basically I made sure that every Uber product, every Uber, we called them squads at the time, had data scientists who were oriented to the problem and you know skilled in the right way. But data also became the incubation space for a lot of the early special projects. The Uber pool and a lot of the ideas of, okay, how would you build a dispatching model which enables different people with pooled ride requests? How do you batch them together efficiently so that we can get the right match rate that this product is profitable? We did a lot of work on the theory behind the hub and spoke Uber Eats delivery models and thinking through how do you apply our learnings and rideshare to food? So I got the first person perspective on a lot of these products when it was literally three people scribbling on a notepad or riffing on a laptop over lunch, and then how they eventually went on to become these big nationwide businesses. Did you have a hand in rating Carnegie Mellon's computer science department? I didn't. So I was very focused on the rideshare product and then built that team up to like 100 and then spent a bunch of time hanging out with the infrastructure guys. So basically, I built this team, handed it off to an adult executive, and was like, all right, let me go find my next zero to 100-person problem. And I realized that nobody on the infrastructure side of things came into work specifically focused on making data scientists more high leverage at their jobs. You know, we were all using other people's tools, and that felt like a missed opportunity. And so I, I launched a bunch of our data science platform work. So kicked off the Michelangelo project, Uber's machine learning platform, did experimentation, but it was always very much in the rideshare application space. I did spend a little bit of time at Advanced Technologies Group towards the end, which is where I think a lot of the folks from Carnegie Mellon ended up. I was one of the few people sort of as the get the band back together last ride. We got a bunch of the early Uber guys uh, joined up with Lior and the freight brokerage team to build out the product that became Uber Freight and Uber's foray into long haul trucking, which was wild because we got to hang out in ATG and like see all the people with the semis up on the list and stuff, but it was still just pure play software. So I got to do the best of both worlds, hang out with autonomy nerds, but leverage my pure software chops. Were you still at Uber when this whole thing sort of blew up with Anthony Lewandowski? Yeah, it was a very interesting era for me because I've done everything I wanted to do. I joined a 20-person company, and at the time, we were closing in on 20,000 people. The company is big and successful and amazing, but also I kind of missed the, the small greenfield, small team dynamic mm-hmm. and felt like I was hitting a natural stopping point. And then Uber's 2017 happened, and there was Anthony, there was mm-hmm. Susan Fowler, Travis has this horrific accident in his personal life, and right. his head is not in the game. And I'm like, I did not just spend six, seven years building all of this to be the guy who was known for bailing in the you know, worst quarter of the company's history. And so I ended up spending the next year basically keeping the band together and trying to figure out what I could do to keep you know whatever small part of the company I was running intact and motivated and empathetic and 
good in every sense of the word. And it worked out. As I mentioned, we were part of ATG, but we were also the only software division. So organizationally, we were pretty isolated. It was me and, and Curtis Chambers, who was Uber's first head of engineering, is a very close friend. So it was the two of us, and we were running our own little distinct things. There was like a committee of 14 executives running the company at one point. And I think that they were very well-intentioned in putting out the call for, hey, if anybody has ideas for how we can do this better, let's bottoms up surface them and we'll layer on a top-down vision. And so Curtis and I said, great, we're going to do our first gender pay studies. Freight was the first team that did unconscious bias training. And it was very old school Uber of like, move really fast and beg forgiveness later where the company's like, you guys did unconscious bias training? We're like, oh yeah, we just like spent the company's money, did it three months ago. It was great. They're like, why didn't you ask for permission? We were like, well, sorry for doing the right thing. We figured we should just move quickly. And I, I liked it because it was a great way to leverage the social capital we built up. It's like, you're not going to fire me for doing the right thing. And, and certainly I've felt like I've done we're building a team that was becoming an example for the rest of the company in some ways. So it, it was a year that I had not planned to do at Uber, but I think we made the best of, I think, what was really challenging times. And then Dara being hired was, for me, the opportunity to say, okay, we're back to one executive in charge of the company. He's somebody who whose leadership style I believe in, I think. Travis, in many ways, had a lot of skills that were necessary for getting Uber to where it was. And Dara, I absolutely believe, has the skills to get Uber from where it was in 2017, 2018 to where it is now and on into the future. I feel like they nailed it. I can let go of the rope and feel comfortable about where the company stood. So yeah, I ended up moving on towards the end of 2017 and spent the next couple of years as a data executive, I was chief data officer at Tala Financial down in LA. They do financial identity microfinance, so lending mm -hmm. to folks with other traditional financial background. Another very fascinating data problem, how do you do KYC out in the Tanzanian backcountry, or how do you evaluate creditworthiness for people without a traditional career? So spend another couple of years doing data operating and in parallel to all of this, I'd been angel investing and advising. It looks like a lot of people tried pulling you in Playground Global, Costanoa, Data Collective, also Renegade Partners. It's amazing how busy you've been since uh, leaving Uber. So all the time you were advising them, but also making your own angel investments? That's right. Towards the end of 2015, I started investing on nights and weekends in advising, and it was in some ways, like a professional counterpoint to just thinking about town cars and Priuses on demand. I just wanted to think about a different problem for a bit, but also a way for me to balance that joy and enthusiasm and fun I have in that zero to one phase of company building while being very pragmatic that what we have going on at Uber is really exciting and fun in different ways and financially rewarding. So I was two tracking it and doing you know, operating by day, advising and investing by night. And thankfully, both Uber and Tall and everybody involved was aware of both and supportive of this. But it was a lot of context switching. And so I spent from about 2019 onwards doing a little bit of a self-check-in of where is this going to go? How do I want to be spending the next phase of my career? And so you mentioned Playground, Costa Noa, Renegade. They're all venture capital funds. And I was trying to feel out the space a little bit. And came to the conclusion that to do this, it was going to be less about trying to find a firm that thought the way I thought. 
it was going to have to be okay. I have to bring this to the table myself. And faced with the choice of either launching my own funding, building from scratch the way I wanted to do it, or try to like wrestle with the parameters of somebody else's fund, I just concluded, I think I want to launch my own fund. And that eventually became Rackhouse. So the focus is on machine learning and artificial intelligence? Yeah, that's right. The the thing that I really got interested about was this idea that most domain experts, most operators, even most enthusiasts in the AI space say the opportunity for data science and artificial intelligence is truly spanning most, if not every industry. At some point or another, data can improve just about every business, every sector on the map. Yet, Most firms that I think about who are investing in AI start with this very strong industry thesis, right? They say, we are a B2B technology firm, or we are enterprise only, and then they back into AI exposure by saying, all right, within the constructs of enterprise, let's find the least hokey sounding AI opportunity. Isn't it somewhat of a cliche in that sense? Companies say they use AI or machine learning in order to make them sound a little bit more sexy? That's certainly a phenomenon that happens. And I'd say in some ways, there was this arbitrage where as the operators led the investors in AI expertise, you could sell like AI hype and just sort of say, look, we're customer service, but with AI and like VCs would fall for that. I think what's happened now is the investing community has largely become wise to fake AI, but because there are so many firms with this industry focus, you end up with a legitimate enterprise AI opportunity has seven, eight, nine, ten top tier firms all competing for the deal. You just end up with these overcompeted deals, overcompeted sectors. So my attitude to it was saying, I think that there are amazing opportunities outside of the traditional industry focus that to the extent that you can find rigorous applications of AI. They're also going to be significantly less competitive because it doesn't fall in the strike zone of nearly as many firms. That's the game I want to be playing. I feel like that opportunity biases toward domain experts. The further away you go from these strike zones, the further you get from patterns that you open the aperture of the investors who can get conviction. To do that, you got to support AI founders regardless of sector, regardless of geography. And so that's what Rackhouse does, that we as a fund say we will talk to any data company, any artificial intelligence, any machine learning company, regardless of what you do, as long as you're early on and looking for somebody to be one of your first checks, give me a call. So Kevin, when you say you're trying to operate outside of the VC's strike zone, I guess that maybe explains why you raised a relatively small fund when it seems that you could have raised a bigger one. You've put together a $15 million fund, is that correct? Yeah, it's very flattering. Michael at Sindana is one of our anchors, and he's like, you could have done a $100 million fund. A couple of reasons I didn't. I think one is I want to make sure that I build a fund that enables me to be an active participant in the earliest stages of companies. Matt Akko and Zach Bogue are good friends of mine. They're mentors. In fact, they're small LPs in the fund and have built Data Collective. And they were talking with me about how they got started, but now they're running a billion plus in assets Mm -hmm. under management. The types of founders I see, two people moonlighting, getting ready to take the plunge. The check size that they would have to deploy for it to make sense for their assets means it's about three or four times the amount of money at a minimum that those founders could responsibly handle. And they've basically priced themselves out of the formation and pre-seed stage. 
I like that stage. I think it's something where I have a lot of useful experience. I also think it's a stage where the less ambient information you have about a company, you don't have five quarters of financials, the more you have to get conviction from a place of domain expertise. So I feel like it leverages my strengths. So I wanted to build a fund that I could do pre-seed, seed formation. I still think 15 million is probably at the bottom end of that. I'd like to build a fund to 30 to 50. But I think the other part of this is I think it's pragmatic to where I'm at on my professional journey, which is had a lot of success and have a lot of reputation as an operator, have done some investing enough that I can stay with a very clear eye. I know what I'm doing. I can be a good steward of your money. I can identify and win and support a portfolio. But I tend to get caught up as more of the either utility player or as a meaty follower check, not the person they want to sit on the board because I've been sitting on boards for 30 years. And so I said, look, I'm going to build a fund that can do two hundred dollars to $500,000 pretty comfortably into our round. And I love that stage because that is enough money where if you are debating starting a company and you're looking for somebody to take the first risk, that gets you easily 80% of the way there to say, I can quit the job and go do this thing. So I can basically solo fund a formation round. But at 250 to 500K, if somebody is doing a seed round in the low single digit million dollar, raising one, two, three million bucks, and you've got a lead who's doing maybe half of that, you know, it's not all that onerous to make an opportunity for me to put 250 or $400,000 into that round, right? I'm not pushing Sequoia off the cap table or trying to convince a founder to do that. You've got a lead, you've got one or two secondaries, I will live in that category. And then you've got this long tail of friends, family, and small checked angel strategics. So I think it allows me to acquire deal flow from a lot of different channels. There's a lot of different ways we could add up to an opportunity that makes sense for Rackhouse. I think over time, the funds get a little bit bigger. I think we'll be more contending for that lead check size, but I'm really excited about what we're doing right now. And I think it'll give me a chance to really knock it out of the park on this first fund or two and then earn the right to be in that pole position. So Kevin, I'm wondering to date how you've found the teams that you're backing and what exactly you're looking for. You said you're a sector agnostic. So what do you want to see from these founders? Are they people that maybe you've known from Uber or do they tend to be data scientists from big companies? Yeah, I think it's a yes and exercise. It really helps to have directly hired the first hundred or so data scientists at Uber. So I'd say Uber is still a channel for me, for sure. But as part of that process, when I was running data for Uber, I made a point to get connected to basically every other head of data in the Valley. And some of this was you'd be up on a stage at TechCrunch and you're on a panel and you just make a point to get to know people. Some of this is just professional coaching and peer coaching. Riley Newman, who actually is now a partner over at Wave Capital was running data science at Airbnb when I was coming up at Uber. And we were constantly swapping notes. I'm like, how do you handle building a team from two to 20 to 200 over 18 months? I made a point to both become well-known and, and get to know all of the people. Now that I'm wearing the investor hat, one, it was really cool. As I called them up, a lot of folks came back around to BLPs in the fund. And they were not the multi-million dollar anchor checks, but like, hey, we believe in this. We want to see you be successful coming as, as checks on the smaller side. They're all active members of the community sending deals my way. And then surprisingly, a lot of the founders, including a significant number of the founders I passed on, have come back around because this 
style of saying, look, here are the things I'm demonstrably good at. I'm not going to put too much English on the cue ball. People have heard of me. Here's my story. I genuinely want to help and I'm going to try and lead really authentically. Seems to resonate really strongly with founders. They like the respect and the ability to help them in a straight line way. One of my founders told me every other investor I call, I ask them about a problem that's related to data and they say, oh yeah, let me open my Rolodex and they'll connect me to somebody. And it's like a, a minimum two meeting process. When I call you, you answer the question in the first five minutes in first person tense as this is something you've handled before. I think that that style seems to resonate strongly with founders. And that's how I like to run the fund. I, I speak from personal experience. I, I won't say I've seen all of it. But the stuff I do, I try to be really good at. And that seems to be something founders respect. What are some of your newest investments at Rackhouse? Some of the investments that you're most excited about? Realizing, of course, that you love all of your children equally. Yeah, exactly. The first among equals. There's one company that actually I was just talking with, with these guys the other day. Sauce is based out of LA. And the idea behind Sauce is dynamic pricing. You can see why I love this for restaurants, right? In the COVID pandemic, every restaurant, a significant fraction of them, suddenly had to run their business almost exclusively through takeout and delivery, right? And suddenly these platforms like Uber Eats and DoorDash and Seamless and all the like went from being a minority channel of where they sourced revenue to, to a, this is literally the only way my company is going to make money at the moment. And that was both really exciting to see as somebody who spent a lot of time dreaming about Uber, but it also surfaced the realization that all of these platforms and all of these networks, when they think about marketplace optimization, are trying to optimize for the network's throughput. As a restaurant, there's really nobody who's looking out for your personal interest. You've got burger patties that have an expiration date on them. You've got payroll. And so there's this opportunity here around the idea that Restaurants are leaving money on the table by not recognizing what their food is worth. And I don't necessarily think it's they're undercharging. Sometimes, in fact, they're overcharging. One of the coolest things we've seen about Sauce is that they offer a product to restaurateurs to basically dynamically raise and lower the prices of their menu on the restaurant side of the delivery equation. And sometimes by lowering the price of burgers, you actually unlock something like 35% more demand in certain circumstances and you come out ahead on a blended revenue, especially when you factor in food costs. Do customers understand when the price of their hamburger is going up and down like that? The biggest mistake I made in dynamic pricing was the multiplier effect, right? I am somebody for whom math came particularly easy. I brought that bias into the product and I'm like, of course somebody can remember what their Uber was and then multiply that by 1.7x, right? That's not a realistic way for how most human beings interact with math or interact with the Uber app. What's interesting, especially in the delivery product space, is the prices are all on the app screen, right? It's not a, oh, I've raised prices up or down. It's a, oh, hamburgers are 20% off. It was $10. It's now $8. And they're thinking in terms of absolute dollars. I've done a bunch of work on this both at Uber and I have a good friend down at UCLA who does behavioral econ that says that the upfront pricing expressed in dollars tends to have a higher comprehension. Now, I'm consciously not answering the question here, which I think you were asking, which is, do customers always like that? How does that make people feel? I think that there is undeniably a challenge here. If you are a regular customer, you get the blue plate special. It has always been 1075. 
And now a bunch of MIT whiz kids come in and some days you show up and it's $8.50 and other days you show up and it's $15 or $17. That is value and product market fit for what the customer is expecting. And it's actually something we've been working on with Sauce, that there is both the absolute price that you charge for a product and the variance that that customer will tolerate tend to vary by different customer segments, right? Some people, their dream restaurant experience is $13 flat, never changes. Other people want to be much more sort of dynamic. I think the right product, and this is something obviously that we've been hard at work on, they're doing the heavy lifting here, is trying to accommodate both of those use cases in a way which is fair to the restaurant's bottom line. But the big challenge here is that restaurateurs are being left behind by these food delivery networks. And worse, I don't actually think it's like these networks moving in bad faith, right? If it was just ignorance, in some ways that's easier to fix because all you have to do is make them smarter. We're pretty good at figuring out how to make computers smarter over time. So it's not just an IQ point, it's a misalignment of incentives that Sauce comes in and says, look, we want to look after the small restaurateur, the individual. One of the ways we can do that is by doing a better job of understanding price. Anything that makes restaurants more competitive, I think we're all for. Exactly. I remember we talked about all this a lot of time where we were like, you want to build these vibrant city communities. Part of that is a dynamic marketplace, which guarantees throughput. But part of it is being pragmatic to like, we are not all free market capitalists and we are not all people who are very risk on. And you've got to build the city bus in the economic sense where it's 225, regardless of what time of day it is, day or night. That plays a very important role in the transportation fabric of a city. I think figuring out those analogs and allowing for us all to have different objectives in these other verticals is just as important, but it's all about let's build cities and communities where it works better for everybody. Kevin, you mentioned that Matt and Zach Bogue of DCVC are LPs, Sendana. Are there any other LPs that you feel comfortable mentioning? Yeah, absolutely. It was a $15 million fund. Michael and the Sendana team have been great partners or an anchor through their Sendana Nano program. Curtis Chambers was Uber's first head of engineering, was literally the first call I made, and he committed in the first 30 minutes. He was our my first anchor. And then my third anchor investor is a gentleman named Steve Galula. He's based out of LA, was a former chairman of Searchlight Pictures and a friend of the family. I like a variety of viewpoints. As I said, data has opportunities beyond the classic technology perspective. So they've been the anchors. I've completed the set, Uber's first 10 engineers are all LPs of one size or another. And then a lot of the, the venture capitalists I've had a chance to work with over the years have come in. The Costa Noa partners all contributed their share. And now I get the chance to go in and work with founders and build something we're all going to be proud of. And Kevin, you're based in the Bay Area, it sounds like. I am. I live in Menlo Park, but I will talk to founders regardless of where they're at on the planet. Kevin, such a pleasure getting to know you. Thank you so much for making time for this. Yeah, thank you for having me on. This was really cool. Bye, everybody.